I ended the last Bible question, what does the Bible say about the eternal destiny of the lost, with a central teaching of Scripture. Cover to cover, it warns us of the horrors of hell. But side by side, it woos us with the joys of heaven for those who are saved. In this Bible question, I want to answer the question, what does the Bible say about the eternal destiny of those saved by the shed blood of Jesus? I'd say, what does the Bible say about heaven? But as we'll learn, the images we have of heaven from art and culture and even sermons is at best incomplete and at worst, a distorted caricature of what the Bible teaches. I'm going to use the same approach as the last episode, giving you 10 overall landmarks on the journey through the pages of Scripture about the eternal destiny of those who are saved by the shed blood of Jesus. Number 10. The eternal destiny of the saved is indescribable. Paul summarizes it in 1 Corinthians 2.9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, in trying to answer this question, my assignment is to unscrew the inscrutable. At best, we just get shadows of eternity. Paul should know what he's saying. In 2 Corinthians 12, he tells us he got an eyewitness glimpse into eternity. Paul tells us there was a time he was caught up to the third heaven. I have a hunch I know when that was. The first missionary journey, Lystra, when he was stoned to death. If you'd like to get caught up on that story, you can hear about it in episode 127. Who knows, maybe it was just a vision at another time. What we do know is Paul called it paradise and said even the things he heard there, he could not find words to describe. At the crucifixion of Jesus, to the thief next to him on the cross who went all in in faith, saying, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus said, Today you will be with me in paradise. There's that word again, paradise. Whatever we can learn about the eternal destiny of those who go all in in faith in Jesus, it's just a glimpse of something mind-blowing. Number nine, we are with God, with Jesus. As we learned in word pictures, the entire theme of the Old Testament is, I will be your God, you will be my people, and we will be together. The prophet Isaiah was told that one would come born of a virgin who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And the angel told Joseph, Mary's husband, that will be your child, God with us. In Mark 3, Jesus picked 12 men, and Mark tells us why, that they might be with him. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus told his troubled disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, you may also be. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul, carried along by the Holy Spirit, wrote of the destinies of those with faith in Christ who had already died. He writes they would be resurrected so that they will always be with the Lord. And in Revelation 21, speaking of the conclusion of human history on a new heaven and a new earth, repeats twice that God would be among them, would dwell among them. We will be with God, with Jesus. Number eight, we are there in resurrected bodies. So often in medieval art, popular culture, and in the songs and sermons of the church, we get this wrong. In the book of Job, likely the oldest book in scripture, we hear Job state this, Check out what Job says, For I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. 
And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Wow. Thinking about this, he concludes, my heart fails within me. No kidding. Resurrection of our bodies is modeled vividly by Jesus in the Gospels. On that first Easter morning and for the 40 days after, Jesus gives us a prototype of what a resurrected body is like. There in the upper room, when they saw him, the disciples thought he was a spirit, a ghost. I mean, what else could they think? He was dead and there he stood. By the way, they thought the same thing earlier in the Gospels when they saw Jesus walking on the water in a storm. Jesus quickly clears up that confusion. In his resurrected body, he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In the hours and days ahead, Jesus walked with them, ate with them, made them breakfast. It was basically the Jesus they all knew, and that included his voice. We saw outside the tomb resurrected. All he had to say to Mary was her name, and she dove to his feet. It was a resurrected body. Yes, upgraded. In that upper room, he did come right through the locked door. It sure sounds like we will have a body. Some read passages like 1 Corinthians 15, where it says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And several times, Paul contrasts the natural with the spiritual. You can see why some conclude at death, we shed this sinful fleshly cocoon and become fleshless spiritual beings. But we need to be careful with that. What if spiritual just means our resurrected bodies are no longer sinful? but filled with and guided by the Spirit. That seems to be a better fit with what we learned in the Old Testament, that as physical beings we were made in God's image, that we were woven together fearfully and wonderfully by our Creator. If we were made this way originally, why wouldn't God remake us in a very similar way in our resurrected bodies? Number seven, we may well be back on a new earth. Twice in Isaiah, God states he will create a new earth. Here's what it says in chapter 66. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. He's promising to keep his promise to his people. And he assures it with the illustration of his promise of a new heaven and a new earth. He continues in Isaiah to say, all flesh notice that word, shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Peter, in his second letter, writes, We wait for the hastening and coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Notice, God's righteousness dwells on that new earth. And the book Revelation closes out with this promise in chapter 21. John reports, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. As with our resurrected bodies being recreated to be similar to the way God originally designed us, one could argue the new earth will be recreated similar to the way God originally designed it. 
Let me give you a word picture I've shared with my students. They leave for summer break, and I get together with parents and say, let's turn our 10-acre playground into a massive fun fort for our precious students. We spend all summer creating a paradise to play on. But the day before school resumes in the fall, a neighbor moves in next door. He's psycho. He prowls his property, threatens the students, and at night comes and destroys parts of the playground. Finally, that bully, the psycho neighborhood, is put away for good. Wouldn't we want to see our kids play on that playground we designed just for them? Those things that we had to repair, wouldn't we be likely to rebuild them similar to how we built them to start with? Maybe bigger and better, but similar. On a new earth, will there be a Victoria Falls, a Grand Canyon, an Amazon jungle? Hmm, could be. Number six, we will probably do in eternity the things God designed us to do here. In episode 15, we looked at what Adam and Eve did together prior to sin. They walked with God, managed the earth together, loved each other. That sounds like the eternal destiny of the saved. I've been taught eternity is all about worship. Friends, scripture teaches working in obedience to God and to the glory of God is worship. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul writes, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. Further, worship and service are hooked together several dozen times in Scripture. You heard Jesus hook them together in the temptation, saying to Satan, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus told the disciples their destiny was sitting on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus told parables that those who are faithful in a few things here and now will be given more things to be faithful over in the hereafter. Revelation 22.3, the last chapter of the Bible, makes it explicit. It says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be on it and his bondservants will serve him. There may be some harps, but get ready to roll up your sleeves. We'll still have work to do. Number five, there will be relationships with each other, and they'll be amazing. Think about this. In creation, God was with Adam in perfect conditions, and God said, this is not good. He made Eve to be his partner, to correspond to him and they together would be transparent to God and to each other. When we're resurrected, recreated in eternity, why would it be any different? Just me and God forever? That would still not be good. God is love, and love requires objects to love, and the more the merrier. In 1 Corinthians 13, what we call the love chapter, we're told what love is to look like in this fallen world. Then at the end of the chapter, we're promised that someday we will know fully and be fully known. Now that's relationships. I know what some of you are thinking. Jesus said there would be no marriage in heaven. Yes, he did. He also said that we will be like the angels. That's maybe where some of those medieval artists got their inspiration for turning us into those wing things. But how are we like the angels, and why will marriage be obsolete? Let's talk about the obsolete marriage part of that. Jimmy came home from preschool and asked his mom, Mommy, 
What do people do on honeymoons? A little startled, Mom said, Jimmy, why do you want to know? Jimmy said, well, my best friend Billy's big brother is getting married to a girl, and they're going away on a honeymoon. What do you do on a honeymoon, Mama? Why don't you ask Daddy when he gets home? When Daddy got home from work, Mama, standing at the sink, said, Hey, honey, Jimmy has a question for you. Jimmy crawled up in Daddy's lap. Daddy, what do you do on a honeymoon? Daddy said, Why do you want to know, sport? Because my best friend Billy's big brother is marrying a girl, and they're going on a honeymoon. What do you do on a honeymoon? Mom was giggling over by the sink. Well, sport, you go to a beautiful place and spend time together. Jimmy's eyes grew big. Can I take Billy on my honeymoon? Dad nailed it. Well, Jimmy, when you grow up and find that special girl and decide on that special place to go to be together, if you want Billy to come with you on your honeymoon, you just go right ahead. The reason I think marriage will no longer be in place is probably because with our new sinless, resurrected bodies in a God-filled and God-glorifying world, we will have a relationship with every brother and sister that is fully transparent, joy-filled, and intimate. Taking marriage from this fallen earth to our destiny and eternity will be like taking Billy on our honeymoon. Number four, it's very likely we'll remember our life here in the hereafter. That came as a surprise to me as I studied the Bible. I thought death brought a memory wipe. I had the idea when Revelation tells us there would be no more tears and pain, it implied we wouldn't remember the anguish of our life on our time on this earth. But I've changed my view. Throughout the Old Testament, God commanded the people of God to remember what he had done to care for them and to deliver them. What do you think will be our response if we can see the anguish of our lives in the context of how God redeemed it for his glory and for the benefit of others. Won't that bring a smile to our faces and incredible delight and worship? Frankly, I not only expect to remember the events of my life, I expect to see the relics of God's salvation throughout human history. Maybe the ark, the cross. Jesus' resurrected body still bore the marks of his crucifixion. I think they'll still be there. Further, I expect to hear testimonies of millions of believers how God redeemed their pain and plight to his glory. Don't you love great stories? I'm preparing for great redemption stories. Number three, we will still be finite in eternity. I kind of thought we would be the complete package from the get-go. You know, just like Jesus I got that idea from verses like 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. The question is, how will we be like him? In eternity, will we be all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful? I don't think so. We'll still be the creature, not the creator. I'm not sure I can answer the question how we will be like him. The best I can do is to go back to how he originally created us before sin. People made in his image, beings who could choose, love, rule. Only now, in eternity, able to do these things without the stain of sin. 
The teachings suggest we will be finite creatures, but having an infinite time to discover and grow in an infinitely perfect new heaven and new earth. Number two, God left the story of what happens in the new heaven and the new earth a bit foggy. One of the eight themes of scripture we studied in word pictures was rain. God and his son, Messiah, will rule and live among us. Perhaps the most astounding chapter in scripture concerning this is Daniel chapter 7. We looked at this in episode 73. In this one chapter, God gives Daniel the sweep of human history from his time to the end of time and into eternity. Here's what verse 13 and 14 said. I, Daniel, kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Other passages describe this everlasting kingdom. Lions lying down with lambs, children playing with cobras, deserts blooming, and righteousness covering the earth like waters cover the sea. The question is, when and where will this happen according to scripture? Several times a thousand year reign of Jesus on earth is mentioned. You can read one of these in the first portion of Revelation chapter 20. Some think that will literally happen on earth then believers will be whisked away to where we really belong. Advocates of this view point to passages like Hebrews 11, where the heroes of faith are called strangers and exiles here on earth. But others push back saying, not so fast. I think it makes more sense those verses are mostly speaking of Jesus reigning on a new earth, living with us and ruling over us. After all, Earth is the place God custom designed for us. Many times we feel out of sorts, aliens and strangers on this planet because it's broken, because we long to be with Christ. But a resurrected earth ruled by Jesus and chock full of his glory and righteousness, that sounds like a pretty great home to me. And number one, the eternal destiny of the saved happens because of Jesus. Revelation chapter 5 is my wife's favorite chapter in the Bible. She can't hear it or read it without weeping for joy for Jesus. Here is what reverberates through eternity from those who are saved. Worthy are you. You were slaughtered and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. The old hymn I learned growing up is spot on. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. No eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him, those all in on the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf.